Uh, we're going to read a few verses from the scriptures, uh, and I want to read from um, <coughs> First Peter uh, chapter two. First Peter chapter two. And we're going to read We'll read again from verse one uh, through to verse ten. First Peter chapter two, verse one. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth in him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. For unto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen. We know God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his infallible word. Let's just by in prayer. Lord, we just ask again that you'll receive these, our gifts and tithes and offerings. You'll use them for the furtherance and the strengthening of the work of God in this locality. We pray for the work of God here. We thank thee again for our children, our young people, our boys and our girls. We commit them to thee. We thank thee for last Sabbath. We bless thee for helping them as they uh, conducted themselves by way of Children's Day. We, we thank you for all that took part we ask you to remember our children. We pray that early in life you'll save them, raise them up to be testimonies and witnesses of how good and how gracious thou hast been. We just look to thee that you might call some to be missionaries of the cross and ministers of the gospel. Lord, cause all to be pillars in the church in the day to come. Make some mothers in the Israel of God for thy glory. We, we just look to thee. We, we pray, Lord, that you'll remember them even as they come to the end of their time at school or at college or in university. We just pray for your gracious hand to be upon them and for thy leading. We look to thee that you will again remember the sick, the old, the infirm, the shut-in ones of the church. We just pray thy blessing and thy help to be upon them. We look to thee as well at this time that you'll 
undertake for our building site next door. Know our desire to move forward. And oh God, we just wait upon thee. And we pray that soon that we'll be able to at least have some forward movement on the site next door. We commit it to thee and to the working of thy will. Lord, work things out for thy glory. We know that as for thee, thy timing is perfect. And we just pray that you'll grant us grace in the meantime. We look to thee that you'll undertake for our denomination as a whole. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you will remember the Congress that's coming up. We pray for the outpouring of thy spirit and this theme, the call to battle. And that, Lord, to a man, to a young person that names the name of Christ, even throughout our denomination and further afield, there'll be this call that's heeded. And we'll stand together as soldiers of the cross and seek to, to, to wage a good warfare in the name of the Lord Jesus for thy glory. Lord, we know we're in a spiritual battle. And Lord, we know that our fight is spiritual. And we pray that you'll help us to to, to fight the good fight of faith uh, for thy glory. We look to thee that you will remember the Reverend Paul Fitzsimons as he's now received and accepted this call to Muller Glass. We thank you for him. We just commit him to thee. We pray, Lord, that his installation service, he know much of the blessing and the grace uh, and the help of God. And Lord, as he takes up the charge of that work and witness, Pray that it will go forward and it will be strengthened. And Lord, it will know the blessing of the Lord. We just look to thee to remember the Reverend McLaren as he plans to retire on the 20th of June. Undertake for that service as well. And we just pray again for the mercy of God to be upon him at this time. We look to thee, Lord, you'll just bless us now. Shut us in with thee. We ask thee to undertake for us. Meet our need in these days. Pour out thy spirit and thy church as a whole. Remember the church worldwide. Remember those that are persecuted today for their faith in Christ. Lord, we're here in freedom with an open door policy. Lord, we, we, we realize that in the like of Saudi Arabia there is no churches. Lord, there's no naming the name of Christ. Uh, Lord, there's no carrying a Bible even in public. You, you know the fear and, uh, and threat of death that many live under in Saudi Arabia and other such lands. And yet we thank thee that thou was believers there. We just pray for their strengthening, pray for their help, pray for their encouragement. And Lord, remember our own land at this time. We pray that you'll see of Ulster for the preaching of the gospel. And O oh God, let it flourish through uh, thy holy word. Lord, help us to lift up now the name of Christ and rejoice in our heart. Just be with us, bless us and do us good. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Now this morning, as we continue our series of expository sermons in First Peter... My text today is taken from the first part of verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation. And my theme for this morning is simply learning from the doctrine of election. I want you to think of three things this morning. This is what I want you to learn about the doctrine of election. First of all, this is a comforting doctrine but ye are a chosen generation let's remember the word but Uh, it's a conjoining word Uh, it it joins on from the previous statement it acts like a hinge it really is shutting out one truth that's been mentioned namely the doctrine of reprobation we preached in that two weeks ago how God deals with disobedient sinners. And now he's opening up 
into another truth, another subject, and his subject this time is the doctrine of election. What he's saying is this, there are those who in life are desirous of sin. They're determined to sin. They live in rebellion and defiance of God. And the apostle is telling us plainly that they sadly are appointed to wrath. In other words, they get what they deserve on account of their sin. God is just, God is true, God is right in judging them. Now let's remember he's talking about disobedient sinners. They have no inclination after Christ. They have no desire for him. He's not precious to them. Uh, They see no value or intrinsic worth in him. Uh, They have no longing uh, for him. And there are those like that. And God just leaves them alone in their sin. And now the apostle tells us that there are some who are not left alone in sin, but they are lifted to salvation. And they're lifted to salvation because they are a chosen generation. But ye are a chosen generation. Now I want you to notice that he's introducing us again to the doctrine of election. Now this is not a new doctrine he's introduced it us this before if you look back at chapter 1 verse 2 having identified himself as the writer having singled out the people to whom he was writing the letter to and where they're located he says of them first peter chapter 1 verse 2 elect according to the foreknowledge of god the father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now why did he introduce this doctrine again? I put it to you that he introduced the doctrine to encourage God's people. See, let's remember the people to whom they were, he was writing were facing difficulty. Life was full of trouble and woe. People found it hard to cope. God's people were suffering due to intense persecution. There was false accusations labelled against them. There was opposition. They were facing uncertainty. They could look upon an unknown future. And he's simply saying to them, remember who you are. He's addressing the whole church collectively, but ye. The word ye is a plural pronoun. But ye collectively are a chosen generation. He's writing to encourage God's people. Here's a second reason. He wants to exhort God's people. You see, he's been exhorting them in this letter to make spiritual progress, to live a life of spiritual fruitfulness, to to live a holy life unto the Lord. And he's saying to them now, live for God in light of your election. Remember who you are. You're a special people. Not only have you been saved, but you're special to God. Being saved because you're special to God. Many people say, That they need help to live for God. And that is true. They need to be encouraged. 
need to be exhorted. Well, here's one way. Take into your mind, I'm special to God. And that will encourage your heart. And then in light of that, say, I'm going to live my best for the honor and glory of the Lord because of this fact. That's what he's saying. That's why he has mentioned this. See, I believe Peter's following the example of the Lord Jesus. Let's go back to um, something in John's Gospel. Um, John chapter 15. In John chapter 15. Look what the Lord Jesus said in verse 16. John 15 verse 16. I'm going to explain it to you just in a little moment. Ye have not chosen me. But I have chosen you. And ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and your fruit should remain. That whatsoever is you'll ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Note these words. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now let's put that in context. The Lord Jesus is in the upper room. He is ministering to his disciples. He's trying to encourage and exhort them. He knows that he's going to be betrayed soon by Judas Iscariot. He knows that he's going to be forsaken of all of his disciples. He knows what's in front of him. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be struck. He's going to be sentenced to death on the cross. He's going to be nailed to the tree. He knew what he was going to face. He knew that men were going to do their worst. He knew that he was going to die a criminal's death on the cross. And he knew when men had finished and done their worst, then the hand of God would take over. And his soul would be made an offering for sin. And just prior to this, here he is in the upper room. And he's ministering to his disciples. John 14 to 17 make for very encouraging, comforting reading. These are days when the Lord Jesus loved and cared for his disciples. These were days of fellowship with them. These were days when he strengthened them. These were days when he shared with them. And one of the things that he shared with them was this. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. And in the context, Christ is encouraging his disciples. They too faced an unknown future. They were going to encounter hatred, persecution, opposition. They were going to know pain and sorrow and toil and even death. The world was going to hate and condemn them like they did to Christ. And he's saying to them, you're chosen. You're special to me. And in light of that, I want you to be encouraged. In light of that, I want to exhort you to live for me. See, it was all designed to to encourage and exhort the people of God. And if you're saved today, you belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is real to you. If Jesus Christ is precious to you and you do love the Lord with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, just remember this. In all that you face and all the circumstances and all the difficulty, just remember that you've been chosen. Just remember that you're special to God. Just remember that you're part of the Lord's people. That, that you're a member of the church of Christ worldwide. Despite your trials, despite your difficulty. Here's a doctrine to take into your mind. This is a comforting doctrine. Notice also 
This is not only a comforting doctrine, but this is a captivating doctrine. But ye are a chosen generation. You see, this doctrine is a very important doctrine. This doctrine really, I believe, should be emblazoned in capital letters. You know, when a word in a book or in a letter is written in capitals, it's emblazoned in that way to, to make it the standout so it's eye-catching to, to, to confirm to your heart how important it is. Sadly, in the Christian church, this doctrine of election is shrouded in controversy. It's shrouded in controversy by opponents who simply haven't grasped what this doctrine is really all about. See, let me give you their arguments. There are some in the world who would love to be a Christian, love to be saved, love to be a friend and follower of Christ, but can't. We could ask them, well, why not? Here's the answer, because they're not part of the elect. Like to be saved, but cannot and will not because of this doctrine? That's a lie. That's utter rubbish. If you genuinely desire to be saved, if you want to be saved, you can. If you say to me, can I come to Christ? Here's the answer. Yes, you can. Glory to God. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. This doctrine of election is not a barrier to anybody who wants to be saved. Here's another argument. The doctrine of election hinders evangelism and outreach. Here's another argument. The doctrine of election hinders and stifles the clear, plain preaching of the gospel. This doctrine stops you making a free offer of the gospel. It's another lie. The doctrine of election leads to loose living and careless Christianity. The doctrine of election presents a God who's unjust and unfair and unloving. Now these are all arguments by opponents of this doctrine who simply haven't grasped what it's all about. These are not new arguments. They've been around for centuries. The devil hates and dislikes this doctrine that God has a special people from all eternity. And in light of that, he likes to throw up these uh, arguments against it. Did you know that in Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Preaching a sermon on Naaman, the leper, was a sermon that produced a riot in the synagogue. In fact, the people almost threw the Lord Jesus to his death. They didn't like it. He mentioned Naaman the Syrian being healed. But there was many lepers in Israel at that time who were not healed. I want to say this morning quite openly and publicly, this is not a hard, bitter divisive, controversial doctrine. This is a powerful, important doctrine that's captivating to the mind, that should be capitalized on by God's people. A doctrine to be grasped and understood and comprehended by our little, finite minds. Let me state this, that God hasn't chosen to save all men. That is, God hasn't chosen to save every individual in the world from their sins. 
If he had, all would be in heaven. Keep in mind the previous subject, doctrine of reprobation, disobedient sinners. There are those in the world who are disobedient sinners, who are just left in their sin. But the Bible teaches that God has chosen some out of the billions in the world today. God has chosen some to be saved. And God's choice is real. God's choice is true, just, good, right and perfect. God has made his choice according to his sovereign purposes and will. Now now listen to me carefully. See, God didn't make his choice on the basis of man's merit or on the basis of what men could do. See, there are those who say, well, we agree with the doctrine of election. It's in the Bible. It's an important doctrine. It should be capitalized. But what's the basis of that choice? Here's the argument. God looks down the corridors of time. He discerned. He foresaw those who would believe. And in light of this knowledge, God made his choice. That is, he was moved to choose on the basis of what he saw. Now, folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. We've already looked at the word foreknowledge, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. The word foreknowledge simply means God's sovereign will, God's sovereign decree. Individuals are not elected or chosen because they would believe. They believe because they were elected and chosen to salvation. The choice of God comes first. You see, there was nothing in them or nothing in us that made God choose. It's not because we were holy or better than others or more spiritual or religious than others or less sinful or less rebellious or easier to work with or or more pliable. There was nothing in us to make us acceptable to God. Nothing that made us appeal to God. God had no reason to make a choice of us. There was nothing in us to recommend us to God. Listen to our shorter catechism. Question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Let's answer. God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. What's the basis? Here's how pointed it is. This is a captivating doctrine that points us, first of all, to God's good pleasure. God having out of his mere good pleasure. That's the reason. Nothing more, nothing less. God acted independently of any man. 
It's out of his mere good pleasure. No individual deserves the grace of God. No individual deserves mercy from God. Why did God show mercy? Why did God display grace to any individual? Out of his mere good pleasure. Now turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It might be good if you underlined these verses. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And look with me at verse 6, 7 and 8. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, 7 and 8. You see, here's the nation of Israel. And let's just ask ourselves, why did God choose to deal with the nation of Israel in the way that he did? He says through Moses, remember this is coming near the end of the 40 year wanderings in the wilderness. This is the second law reiterated in their history. Deuteronomy 7, 6, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee, there's our word, to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Why? The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you are more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't choose the nation of Israel because they were less sinful, because they had something to offer God, because they were the most powerful nation in the earth, because they had greater numbers than any other. No, he says, I chose you because I loved you. You see, there was nothing in us, just like there was nothing in them, that, that, that make, made the Lord choose us. He did out of his mere good pleasure, out of his sovereign will, out of his love. You see, we have nothing and can do nothing and in and of ourselves are nothing to recommend us to God. We did nothing but sin against him. Now here's a doctrine. And it's not only comforting to God's people. But it has to be captivating. Because it's so pointed. It points us to his good pleasure. His love. This is a doctrine that really magnifies him. This is a doctrine that demonstrates his amazing love and grace. All men are sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men are under the wrath of God. All men deserve to die. All men are dead in trespasses and sin. We have no natural inclination or desire to be saved. That's what we deserve. God could give us what we deserve. And if he did so, we have no peace with beef with God. We can't say that God is acting harshly or unjustly or unfairly because God is the power, God is the authority to damn every sinful soul and there's nothing to prevent them from doing that. God is able to deal with sinners. Remember he says in Romans 9 and 13, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. 
And when you think about that, it blows the mind away. You see, this is pointed. And notice also it's personal. But ye are a chosen generation. See, God deals with men personally. And how does he do that? He calls them by name. Remember Zacchaeus, boys and girls, up the tree. The Lord Jesus came to Jericho, stopped at that very tree and spoke. And what did he say? He didn't say, little man, come down. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. He called him by his name. Think of Saul on the road to Damascus with hatred in his heart to persecute the church and blinded by a light, heard a voice. And then I asked the question, who art thou, Lord? And he heard, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And before he heard that, it was Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. See, we talk today in the Christian church about particular redemption. Every one of us has received a personal call to salvation. The Lord has chosen us in eternity past. He has called us in time. He he has changed us. Out of the millions in the world, there's 6.7 billion in the world. If you're saved and in Christ, you think of this. God chose me from all eternity. God has called me by my name. I have, Christ is my saviour. I've got a personal salvation. Also, it's permanent. It's from eternity past to eternity to come. I read there deliberately from uh, question 20 of the Shorter Catechism. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer was God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. You see, it's from eternity past and it's to eternity to come. It starts in the eternal counsels of God. It stretches to eternity to come. In other words, there's continuity there. See, here's a truth. He'll never forsake us. He'll never fail us. He'll never forget us. He'll always in time treat us the same. He'll always view us the same way. This is permanent. Aye, and it's powerful. He elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. You see, Because of your election, because he chose you in eternity past, God has promised to save you. And God has presented you to Christ as a gift. And God has provided salvation for you. Because of your election, you were given to Christ as a gift. And Christ promised the Father that he would come into the world and he would go all the way to the cross and he would bleed and die for sinners. You see, your salvation and mine is secure. It is certain. Nothing could ever frustrate the eternal purposes of God. Those given to Christ 
will be saved and must be saved. They can't ever be lost. Notice the words in verse 9. I'm only focusing on one little fact today. But ye are a chosen generation. That comes first. Literally, you're the elect of God. You are God's elect. You're a special people. And in light of this, this is what you've become. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. This is a comforting doctrine this morning. This is a captivating doctrine that's pointed, points us to God's mere pleasure. It's personal because God has provided a personal salvation for me. It's permanent and it's powerful. Now notice one other thing. This is a challenging doctrine. You see, what does it do when you understand this rightly? It produces humility before God. The Bible says, humble yourselves before the Lord that he may exalt you in due time. Has any one of us got any reason to boast? Didn't the psalmist say in Psalm 34, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Pride is no place in the child of God. This leaves us in the dust before God. This brings us to the place where we realize we are nothing and have nothing and can do nothing to recommend ourselves to God. We are fallen, guilty, hell-deserving sinners. That's what we are. Nothing more, nothing less. It produces humility before God. It also produces holiness before God. How could we live in sin? If Jesus Christ bled and died to lift us out of the pit of sin. How can we continue in sin? How can we hold on to sin? How can we go about excusing sin? As the hymn writer says he breaks the power of cancelled sin and sets the prisoner free. We can't love sin and love the saviour. The Bible says sin shall not have dominion over you. And, And you see in this letter. Peter was exhorting God's people to spiritual progress. He was exhorting them to to live a holy life. He's saying in light of this election, in light of the fact that you're a special people to God, don't only be encouraged, but I want you to exhort you to live for God. Make a choice. Live for God. It also produces honor (coughs) of God. Does this not bring about a mindset whereby we praise him, we give him thanks, we we lift up our voice and we give glory to him? For all the Lord has done for me, I will never cease to praise him. And what has the Lord done? Well, think back to eternity past. God, out of his Or God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some. God made me part of his choice. Is that not an occasion to give honor to the Lord? Remember what we read there in Revelation in chapter 4 and in, in the verse 11. It tells us here 
Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honour and glory and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And also, it produces harmony before God and among God's people. Let me just leave this thought with you. Peter's addressing the church collectively. But ye. It's plural. He's thinking about the people of God in that locality. All members of one body. All part of one building. Think of all being bricks in the wall. All's included. You've all been chosen. And if you're all special to God, then let's learn to treat each other that way. Isn't that a truth that so often forgotten? A truth that sadly we lost sight of? You see, you'll not be at war. You'll not be fighting with your brother and sister. You'll not be speaking ill of them or treating them unjustly or kindly. If you adopt the mindset, this individual is as much a child of God as I am. This individual special to the Lord. And in light of that, I'm going to treat them accordingly. If they're special to God, then they're special to me. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, preacher, I'm not saved. I haven't asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Saviour. But I would like to be saved. I would like to know that I'm a Christian. I would like to know that I'm on the road for heaven and home. Can I be? And the answer to that question is yes, you can. Remember what I said? Verse 7 at least. In the second part, verse 8 deals with disobedient sinners. Not desirous sinners. And if you're a desirous sinner to be saved, then just come as you are. Call on the Lord now. Say, Lord, save me, I perish. And in an instant, you'll be brought into Christ's family, brought into Christ's kingdom. You'll be changed. See, we believe in the free Presbyterian church and the free offer of the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to every creature. And he that believeth. We encourage you this morning to think about God's salvation if you're out of Christ. If you genuinely and truly want to be saved, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, this is what this doctrine produces. This is the challenge of it. And we've got to ask ourselves, has it produced in me spirit of humility? Have I humbled myself before the Lord? Has it produced in me a desire and a love for holiness, a hatred for sin? Has it produced in me a desire to honour the Lord? And am I among those that stands for the harmony in the church? And if someone's saying something against someone else or doing something against someone else and there's about to be a fight break out in the church, then I'll say, well, remember, they're chosen of God. They're special. Let's treat them the way God has treated us. I I leave with you this final reference from Ephesians. It's a reference that I've thought about many, many times. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says this. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Because of our salvation, let's remember who we are and let's treat each other accordingly. May the Lord bless these few thoughts if we've opened up this verse to our heart. And next uh, Lord's Day or whenever uh, the Lord leads, we'll deal with the second part of the verse together.